Welcome back to Sancho's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. And we're back today talking about one of Kurosawa's most famous and well-known films, The Hidden Fortress from 1958, the famous inspiration for Star Wars. Absolutely. This was a an exciting one. It was long, but it deserved it, which I wouldn't say about them all. <laughs> you know a little bit more about this, but one of the first things I noticed after the credits, which were normal, boom, widescreen. I was like, whoa, look at that. Yes, Kurosawa's first widescreen film, and he will never go back. He went wide, and it just gave him so much more room to work. This is shot in Toho Scope, which is Toho's version of anamorphic widescreen. Yeah, it was definitely a very wide shot. And I was thinking, why has this not happened before? This is awesome. This is, like, so obviously what Kurosawa would want, and it worked so well for him. Yeah, I'm not sure if this was just, you know, a developing technology at the time, or if it was just with his massive budgets that they couldn't afford to shoot in anamorphic widescreen, but whatever it is, this is definitely the project to do it for. Do you have any idea what the budget was on this one compared to, like, Throne of Blood? The overwhelming impression I got from this movie is that it looked extremely expensive. Oh yeah, I would say just from everything that we've watched, this is the largest scale movie that we've seen. And I'm happy that we keep saying that, you know, because it was like Seven Samurai was the biggest scale one that we saw. And then Throne of Blood a few weeks ago was crazy big with its big castles and stuff. Here it's even further. It's multiple castles. Yeah, we're in like kingdoms. We're like really in them. I was like, how did he pay all these actors? This film is set during the 16th century, so it's during a period of extreme civil war. This is where a lot of the films kind of wind up taking place in. We'll get into it, but this film is basically a remake, or, I think, a more proper version of The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail. Interesting, yeah, that makes sense. It has a lot of similar characteristics. It has the uh, dopey comedian, it has, like, the really cool <laughs> lead guy. It has the secret royal that's being smuggled across an outpost of enemy forces that are trying to catch that specific person. This is another film with a lot of no inspiration, just like Throne of Blood had, and The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tale was based on Kanjicho, the kabuki, and the no play of the same setup. This was, I mean, really conceived as a fairy tale, almost. It's simplistic, but still complicated, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because there's so much going on, but it is kind of a morality tale, but not quite like Throne of Blood was. It has a happy ending, things work out, which doesn't always happen, especially with, like with Throne of Blood. Yeah, I was worried that it wouldn't work out, and then I was like, wait, no, there's no way this movie isn't gonna... <laughs> I was like, oh, come on, you can't end this on a sour note, and they didn't. It all worked out in the end. Within moderation. Kurosawa needed to deliver a big blockbuster, and this is his biggest financial success until Yojimbo a couple years later. Throne of Blood was incredibly expensive, and The Lower Depths wasn't really a blockbuster hit. So now he had to do something for it. And this is actually the last movie of his that is produced for Toho. Toho will continue to release most of his films after this, but this is the last one that he is like hired by them to make. Going forward, they will be his distributor, but he will form Kurosawa Productions to create his subsequent films. Ah, clever name. We'll explore the rise and fall of his various other companies in future weeks, but for now, let's get into The Hidden Fortress. Yeah, the name is so enigmatic that I really didn't know what to expect, but uh, it's a good one. It's exciting, big, fun, the plot's really long, <laughs> but I'll get into it. Homeless peasants, Tahe and Marashichi, are attempting to earn their fortune as war rages between the Akazuki and Yamana clans. They have made a plan to cut through the hostile Yamana territory to reach the friendly Hayakawa territory. After stumbling upon a piece of gold hidden inside a stick, they are discovered by General Rokuroda Makabe, who enlists their help to move the rest of the sticks to the Hayakawa land following their exact plan. 
They agree, but unbeknownst to them, they are helping transport Akazuki Princess Yuki to safety, whom they believe to just be a mute. Their travels through enemy territory start out successful, but they are eventually identified by some Yamana soldiers. Rakuroda hunts them down and kills them before inadvertently ending up in a Yamana camp where he faces off against General Hayo Totokoro. Rakuroda bests Totokoro in combat, but spares his life and escapes. The group continues to move with their cart full of sticks, which they wind up forced to burn in a fire festival. After recovering the melted gold the following day, Rakuroda, Yuki, and the woman are captured while Tahe and Matashishi escape. The captives are freed by Tatakoro, who is disillusioned with the Yamada after receiving severe punishment for his defeat. The four escape together over the border while the peasants are imprisoned by Hayakawa soldiers. They are eventually freed and brought before Yuki, Rokuroda, and Tatakoro. They thank them for their service and award them a single melted gold piece to share. Get wrecked. <laughs> you had two at the start. You could have gone through none of this and ended with more money. <laughs> I thought that multiple times during the movie. I was like, they could probably get away with just two pieces of gold in their pocket and be fine. <laughs> no one's looking for homeless peasants. Look at their clothes. They don't even have pockets, really. Yeah, you keep seeing uh, the one who I always make fun of on the podcast. You keep seeing him uh, put it like just like in his shirt in like a weird way. As we go through the film, I think let's try to put Star Wars out of our minds. Maybe we'll save that for a future bonus episode. You mean I can't call them R2-D2 and C-3PO like I was planning <laughs> Yes. One of the main takeaways is that here we're getting the perspective of a big royal war between two clans, not from the perspective really of the ruling factions like Throne of Blood, where we're focusing with the generals and everything like that. Here we're with two homeless peasants. Yep. Two lovable question mark. It's weird because they're lovable and like they're pretty funny. And then all of a sudden they're like, all right, we're going to draw straws for, like, who gets to assault this woman. And it's like, whoa. I wasn't actually that surprised by that. I was like, I think this is how we're supposed to see them. They just haven't been doing a good job showing that so far. Like, I had the feeling that was what it was supposed to be like. I'm glad that they never get to go through with any of the bad stuff that they were thinking of doing. Because it is like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, but they want to do a lot of bad stuff. But, no, luckily the girl comes and will just bash their head in. And they're completely neutered by that other one, the nameless girl. Just for writing the plot summary, I really wish that they named that character. I find it so annoying to just be like, uh, the farmer's daughter, question mark? Because that's what it says she is, like, in Letterboxd. Yeah, I guess they just, like, well, I don't even know. It's not like they didn't want us to get her attached to her. She doesn't actually die. She gets shot once, and she's fine. It's a confusing addition. I mean, it's a really strange thing. Yeah, the party keeps, like, growing super unexpectedly, like, by adding the girl and then adding the two soldiers. And I was like, what's going on? Like, what? Yeah, and then immediately disposing of them. Right from the start, we just are following, yeah, as, as we said, R2 and C-3PO, kind of totally in defeat. I want to say, the first shot looks amazing. I was watching this on the Criterion channel, like I always do, in my room, like I always do. And the credits play, and we get to the first shot, and it's like the crispest, clearest, most high-quality picture I've ever seen in Kurosawa. And I was like, oh my god. And it's like so brightly lit, and it, the camera's following them in this weird, like, shaky pattern. It like made me really excited for the rest of the movie. Even though it's very subtle, it's like a strong opening. All of the camera work in this film is incredible. It has such a crisp look to it. It does a lot of really surprising moves that are so much more dynamic than he's ever done before. Like when we have a shot in the ditch later on, and because the screen is so wide now, we can have both of these characters on opposite sides and have that chasm between them be extremely far. There's just a lot of cool stuff that he's able to do with this new technology that's available to him. We're starting off with these guys arguing and then watching a man just get slaughtered right in front of them and the other soldiers don't even bother with them because they're just two hobos. They're not even worth killing. Yeah, they don't matter at all. 
they will go their separate ways and both end up in internment camps doing slave labor. Yeah, as they said they would. He was like, yeah, go your own way. You're going to get caught and you're going to have to dig ditches. He's like, yeah, up yours. And then immediately they both get caught and have to dig ditches. Tahe gets caught up with a few other stragglers and the rest of them get shot, but they're all in these hills and there's all this fog and they're starting to reveal more of the enemy soldiers and stuff before people getting shot. That's another big thing, too. A lot of guns in this one. A lot of guns. Yeah. Think about in Seven Samurai where there were only three guns and there was extreme importance to that because everyone else was armed with close quarters weapons. Yeah, it was like a whole part of the plot. Now these armies of people are all armed with guns or spears or just more distanced weapons. Except when they really need them at the end. Yeah, it, it like expands the sense of the film. Like we're no longer like people fighting up close. It's like a lot of, you know, warfare. Kurosawa gets to introduce a lot of new combat styles that he hasn't done before. Yep, so uh, lightsaber fighting. We have spear fighting later on, which we'll get into eventually, and we'll have horse-to-horse -horse combat. That's never really happened. We almost saw in Seven Samurai, but like, n never like this. Never like a full scene on horseback. That was like, people were on the ground and someone was on a horse. Here is like, two people on horses racing each other, trying to kill each other. Yeah, Sashiro Mufune trying just to mark people on horses, and he does. Yeah, there's just so much new stuff in this film, which I guess we'll say a lot, but can I stress this enough? New camera work, new look, new lighting, uh, new combat. It's big. <laughs> Speaking of scale, I mean, shortly after these guys get arrested, there's like the scene with the digging, which is cool in its own right, but then there's the revolt, the like peasant revolt, and that's a crazy scene. I love it too. When they break out, they're like cascading down this staircase and everything. There's all these people are getting shot and just dropping dead. Yeah, and at first they, like, try and pull back, but then they can't, because there's too many people coming. This alone automatically makes it the biggest scale Kurosawa. Oh, yeah. In Throne of Blood, we saw, like, you know, brief shots of armies just walking or standing. Here, this is pure chaos with literally several hundred people in the frame at once. Uninterrupted shot, we're just watching them get where they need to go and fight each other, and it is visceral and brutal, and it's so cool. Yeah, in fact, the movie even gets, like, smaller after this point. I think it's, like, kind of the, the like, scale-wise climax of the movie right in the beginning. Just with, it really sets up the film. It's, like, a, a new scale of warfare. It keeps you adrenalized because it's gonna take a notch down when it starts to introduce all these other new characters that we have to get to. We get a lot of time with just these two guys for a while. Get to know who they are. Get to really understand their characters. Yeah, they're far more important than I expected. They're, in fact, the main characters of the film. If anything, it's about these two entanglement with the royalty, like not the other way around. The movie begins and ends with them. Yeah, exactly. They're not the comic relief. They are the main focus. It's more a, a straight man relief, kind of. And even then, Toshiro Mifune is just kind of messing with them. Yeah, he's just like permanently fighting with them at, at any given point in time. After they escape, they are trying to, you know, make a campfire and everything, and someone throws a stick because it's not burning, and they hear the metallic ringing, Bing. and they find this little piece of gold from the Akizuki clan. It has the crest on it. Yeah, hidden in the stick. They run to find where they found that gold, and they find another stick that has gold in it. So now both men have one piece of Akizuki gold each. Yeah, more money than they've ever seen in their entire life. The most money they will ever have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and even at the end. It's hard to know exactly how much that equates to, but it's certainly a lot. They sold their homes, they said in the beginning, to come to war to try and find riches. You can buy, apparently, several horses with silver pieces. So gold is like a lot. They, they seem shocked by the idea of three gold, or ten gold, let alone, and then they find the one, they're like, oh my god. Yeah, because I believe it's something like 600 pieces to restore the entire Akizuki clan. Yeah, it was strange, like, how much the 200 was important, and then it wasn't, and then it was. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's just little details that are mentioned. I don't think like the gold is the MacGuffin. You know, it's just the plot device. It's not actually important. It's the gold, and that's how they get kind of introduced to this world. They're searching on like the rock cliffs to find some more. <laughs> There's so many scenes of these guys totally messing up, either climbing or descending these cliffs, and just having so many landslides. I would almost say there are too many scenes. Of this. <laughs> It's like a significant chunk of the runtime, like maybe like a full 10 minutes of them just falling down. I'm like, oh my God, I get it. It's funny and it is, but like, whoa. And I think all of the music here in this film is also really, really great. And I think it's very fleshed out. When those kinds of rock slide scenes happen, you know, the music will become very funny. But then during epic battle scenes, you know, it's got its own appropriate flavor there. I think all of Sato's work here is awesome. He's really continuing in Hayasaka's footsteps. Yep, no, this definitely feels like a bigger, more fleshed out version of like that accompanying music. Kind of like prefiguring what would become like the Star Wars Hall of Score leitmotif thing. Not to get into Star Wars, but like, it's much more important than it was even in like the previous films. And then we are soon introduced to Rokuroda, the secret general of the Akizuki clan. And it is so funny. Literally, these guys go through the entire movie without ever knowing who Princess Yuki is until the last scene. The fact that they're able to maintain this illusion the entire time, it never falters. They get really close when she says farewell, like, spitefully to them. And they're like, what, did you hear that? No. <laughs> That's like a nice little reminder. They don't know who she is. And at the very end, <laughs> it's a great button to end the film. It is. But at this point, they see this, like, strange Chad who's just, like, extremely confident and doesn't give a shit about that. He goes and sits at their fire. In the shortest shorts ever committed to film. Yeah, the only time shorter is when he wasn't wearing pants at all in Seven Samurai. He even tells them exactly who he is, and they don't believe him. Yeah, he's like, hey, I'm the famous samurai general guardian of the princess. And they're like, damn, nah, no way. <laughs> they see a girl who, like, looks mysterious and princess-like. Yeah, they couldn't put two and two together at the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't put two and two together when they were told to put them together. <laughs> yeah, okay, so you have a missing princess who you don't know where she is but there is a girl here who's being defended by the princess's secret guard who said who he was hmm i mean it's pretty obvious to the audience that like she's the princess even before you know who she is so i thought they were gonna know at the beginning i thought uh taihei when he was like oh we're not as stupid as you think we know she's the princess instead he's like we know that you are gonna find her and sell her for gold this whole movie is so funny he manages to balance drama and action and comedy, I think, incredibly well here. He's able to juggle between them because there are moments that are horrific. There are moments that are very serious and action-packed and exhilarating. And then there are just moments with these guys, especially, that are just hysterical. Had, a, I think, a new kind of tone for him that, you know, he explored like a little bit with the men who turned the tiger's tail, but he couldn't. Because World War II was busy ending as they were filming. Yeah, and it was one scene. Yeah, amazing how they were able to do that one scene in this movie in about three minutes. <laughs> Definitely, like, this was, I think, the fully fleshed out sense of tone throughout the entire film. It was very well developed. They didn't feel off at any point. Yeah, it, it pivoted when it needed to, and it never did it in a weird way, I felt like. That would become more common in movies later. I feel like he's really a pioneer of that blockbuster kind of style. Absolutely. And again, this was a huge hit. And honestly, because of Star Wars, this movie is thought of in that vein. And it's not fair to it because this movie is so good in its own right. And it was so big. And it really is, I'll preview it now, one of his best films that we've seen so far. It just isn't recognized that way. Like, I feel like people go in with diminished expectations of it because of its reputation, but its reputation isn't really reflective of the work itself because it is so much more than we've seen so far. He just keeps escalating and raising the bar every week. 
Yeah, everyone's like, oh, it's that cookie movie that inspired Star Wars, but it's actually a beautiful art film. When Rokuroda finds the peasants, he considers killing them, but then they tell him their plan to go through the Yamana territory to get to the Hayakawa territory. Another nice little Kurosawa touch that he does here, like he did in Seven Samurai, is they draw out the map in the sand. Oh, that was nice, yeah. I was like, that really helps. It would have made no sense otherwise. One of my criticisms of Throne of Blood was that I was very confused about how many castles there were and where they are, and I never really got a good sense of place for specific scenes, and I really wanted to just see a map of the kingdom. Here they did it, and they made their plan make perfect sense immediately. I had no questions about it. I totally understood what they wanted. Like, just very clear character motivations, and somehow Rokuroto didn't think of this incredibly simplistic plan. <laughs> so he's like, alright, I guess I'll have them do it, and we'll just use their greed like a little carrot on a stick to get these guys to move all of this gold. Yeah, they'll be pack horses for us. <laughs> yeah, it was funny that Rokuroto's like, it was a brilliant plan. I just thought we were gonna have to die by going through the heavily guarded part, but I guess we'll just go around. Yeah, they figured that out, and they couldn't figure anything else out. Yeah, no wonder the, uh, no wonder the Akazuki clan is on the decline. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he brings them to the Hidden Fortress, but they don't realize it. He brings them to, like, the Hidden Fortress, like, fake outpost. Despite this being the title, the Hidden Fortress isn't in this movie very long, and isn't really a major factor. First, I thought of the meme. I was like, oh shit, they actually said, this is the Hidden Fortress. Uh, that's it, huh? We're some kind of Hidden Fortress. <laughs> yeah. Man, this is just like the Rashomon effect. <laughs> It was uh, my contribution to the meme that didn't take off. But um, they're literally, like, in, 30 minutes into the film, are like, oh my god, it's the Hidden Fortress. I was like, oh, wow. And then, like, it, it doesn't really matter. They're there for, like, 30 minutes in film time, a few days in real time. Yeah, and al almost all of which is just spent digging. <laughs> and they're digging for no reason, which I love. Rokuroto eventually is just like, alright guys, it's time for us to leave. And they're like, why? But we're still digging. It's like, oh, don't worry about digging. I was just having you guys do that to make sure you were loyal or something like that. <laughs> He's like, yeah, this journey's gonna be hard, so I wanted to see if you guys could dig. <laughs> and, and they were like, oh, oh, that's so mean, we're leaving. And then he immediately like, you want to help us move the gold? And they're like, oh my god, yeah. The gold? They can play like suckers this whole time, rightfully. Yeah, but during this time, they are catching glimpses of Princess Yuki, always from a distance. She's always carrying that bamboo swatch that she likes to hit people with. Yeah, it's a really cool little character thing. Yeah, and she's characterized as being a bit of a tomboy, raised to be a little bit more masculine. Yeah, raised to be like a male heir to a throne that didn't have one. Rokuroda and her and her caregiver and things. They meet secretly away from the peasants with a few of the remaining members of the Akazuki clan, which is where we get our Takashi Shimura appearance for like two minutes, and then he gets burned to death. It's just like Star Wars. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. <laughs> I actually didn't think about that until now. Yeah, you see Takashi Shimura, it's exciting. He wasn't in the last one, so it was like, oh, yeah, there is, it doesn't really matter. He's just like a wise old man. Just when you thought he was out, they reel him back in. So, yeah, they try to escape. They get to the river. The river is being guarded by soldiers, obviously. The peasants try and escape on their own. They make fun of the princess for being mute because they don't know who she is. They come up with the plan because they know that these guys would totally sell them out if they actually did know who she was. So Rokuroda uses some reverse psychology that Yuki is totally aware of to get her to play mute. And they take to that pretty easily. I'm not sure how easily I would be convinced that someone of that importance would be mute. And he keeps just saying, like, keep your hands off. She's my girl. And we find out that he sacrificed his own sister for this mission. Yeah, his sister of the same age, which the princess doesn't like. She finds that morally upsetting because she has a good soul and doesn't get the whole power and evil thing. But I feel like that almost becomes a type in, like, later media of the young, naive, but good-hearted princess. who's also a badass. 
she's shown to be this very headstrong character, but doesn't like to really show emotion in front of other people. Some of the people in the clan say that she's never cried in front of anybody, but then we get this cool little scene where she goes and looks over the territory and cries, and they superimpose the Akizuki flag over her. It's interesting. It looks really, really nice. Yeah, she's like on the mountain in a very like cool, well-framed pose. A lot of good shots like that. A lot of landscape shots that really set up the area that they're going to be going. Yeah, good use of the widescreen. Another good sense of scale that this is like a Fellowship of the Ring kind of movement. This party of people moving across into enemy territory to deliver something. They get the plan underway. They reenact the men who tread on the tiger's tail by sneaking their way through one of the outposts. The scene that I, I don't think was that successful because they're crossing the actual bridge where, you know, they'd be found as political prisoners. That's the worry is. He literally just takes a stick off, breaks it two feet away from the guard, pulls out the gold and says, hey, I found this in sticks up on a hill somewhere else unrelated to the rest of my sticks. He didn't say that, but he's like, oh, I found this on a hill. Yeah, because they're all carrying a bunch of sticks because that's, I mean, I, I mean, honest, again, an ingenious method of transportation, honestly, totally unsuspecting. I don't even know how they build those sticks. Instead of having just like heavy bags of gold that, you know, jingle around, a lot of really cool ideas like that. They kind of stumble their way through the checkpoint with Rokurota just being incredibly aggressive, essentially just getting them angry so they force them out on the other side of the outpost. And immediately after that, one of the Yamana generals comes and is like, if you see these people that match the exact specification of them, uh, report them immediately, otherwise you'll like be beheaded or something. I was like, they're like five feet away. They're like, can't they just run and get them now? But I guess as soon as you're past that gate, you're gone. One of my little gripes with the film is there are a couple times where the Yamana let them get away very easily. Maybe they missed one of the uh, time has passed wipes that were supposed to be there. That would have been okay the guy came later. They wind up at this one town. I think this is the single plot point in the film that actively makes me angry. Some man just forces Rokuroda to sell him his horse. So now they don't have any more horses. Yeah, he puts the money in his hand and then leaves and takes the horse. But he, like, somehow takes all the horses. I would have bought it if there was, like, Roku Rota saying, okay, they probably know our description by now, so we gotta change it up, so let's get rid of the horses and we'll try and get a cart instead or something like that. But no, this guy just runs up to him, puts money in his hand, and takes his horse, and it's like, couldn't you say no? He says no, it doesn't work. The guy puts the money in his hand and then leaves and takes the horse. You could say no a little harder than that. I know. They set this up by having Princess Yuki ride the horse off screen earlier in the film, and she says, wow, that's like the best horse I've ever seen. It's way too good to be a pack horse. And the guy who comes in says, that horse is beautiful. It's way too good to be a pack horse. <laughs> I was like, okay, I guess, like you set this up, but like, it's still weird. Yeah, it's like an obvious flaw in their disguise. I hate that because that just just makes me angry. It's like, okay, that was incredible plot convenience that fortunately doesn't really happen that much again, aside from some of the Amana stuff. Princess Yuki winds up looking through a brothel, which is selling Akizuki women. She wants to use some of the money to buy the freedom for one of them, the woman who is never named and is with them for the rest of the time. The woman who I was very sure was going to sell out the princess, because they had a long scene of her looking at a wanted notice for her with a reward. She, like, even might have done it, but then turned bad on it. It's unclear. They draw a lot of attention on her looking at it, but I don't think she actually did it. It just kind of cuts, and then she's coming back. But then she sees uh, Rokurota, and then she, like, freaks out when she sees him. So then I thought, like, oh, she's really guilty now. But then, like, the peasants are going to rape the princess, so then she, like, starts fighting them. Like, maybe it changes her mind. It is unclear. It definitely is implied that she was going to do that. It's really weird that this woman is in the movie at all. She doesn't really add anything. It's, like, she's just kind of there, and I'm like, okay, you always call Toshiro Mafune Mr. Too Damn Honorable. 
here Yuki is Miss Too Damn Honorable right now because it's like you don't need to. Yeah, like right. One point the girl is like, I'm not important enough, like to save the princess. And I was like, you know what? She's right. <laughs> yes. I don't generally agree with monarchism as like a way to organize society. But if you're doing it, then yeah, she's more important. <laughs> like, why are you spending so much energy on this girl who you bought <laughs> just to save? She doesn't even have a name. Yeah. <laughs> what is her name? All she does is maybe sell her out and then save the princess once from the peasants. Like, and then she gets shot and then is a hassle. Yeah, and, and eventually she'll offer to claim that she's the princess and then is immediately told no. They now have traded out their horses for a giant cart that they pushed the wood on. A little weird that only one horse is sold and they lose all three. I think that off screen they sold the other two. That was my interpretation of it. Yeah, I guess so. The guy said with five silver pieces you can buy plenty of horses. And then they don't. When you get into like the extremely minor details of this film, there's stuff that just doesn't make sense. But even though it's really long, and I think the film does feel a little bit bloated, it still manages to move really fast because we're always going to new locations. There's always new stuff happening. There's no going back. The hidden fortress was found and burned by the Yamana clan, so they can only go forward and either they make it or they die. It does give the movie like a real sense of like propulsion. And like I'm complaining about that little thing. I saw it, I noticed it, and I was like, yeah, whatever. And immediately, like, you know, they're just walking down the road, and then Yamana guards come up, and they're like, oh shit, uh... Yamana guard's like, hey, if you see people who look almost like you but different, report them. And the peasants are like, haha, we got him. And they immediately come back. This is like the first real action scene we've had in a while. And it is really cool. Like I said, it's different than we've seen in any other film. Rokuroda kills two and then kills the other two on horseback. And then unintentionally rolls right into a Yamana camp and is surrounded by soldiers. Yeah, I was like a little confused. I was like, oh, now he's just there. It's a really weird cut, because all of a sudden he's just in a camp, and I'm like, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I think he, like, kills the last guy, like, 20 feet away, yeah, from the camp, and then, like, his momentum literally just pulls him into the camp, and he's like, here I am. Yeah, he literally just doesn't have enough time to stop. And then, someone calls his name... Makabe Rokoroda. <laughs> and he's like, oh. <laughs> and we turn around, and we reveal Yamana General Hyoe Tadakoro played by Susumu Fujita, returning to Akira Kurosawa's filmography, Son Shiro Sugata himself. Our boy himself. So exciting. At first, for like four seconds, I was like, I didn't recognize him because he looks really different. He looks extremely different. It's been a long time. He's very heavy. He's like wearing a bald cap and also, you know, is bald. He has like facial hair, which he never had before. I noticed it was him the second that he smiles. He smiled, and I was like, oh, that's our boy. I'd recognize that smile anywhere. And immediately he smiles when he sees his friend, uh, Rokuroda. I was like, oh my god, it's him. It's Ishiro. Because he just has this beautiful, toothy smile. I was so happy. I knew he was coming back in this one, because I knew he had a big gap, and then this was going to be the one he returned. I didn't. Oh, I wasn't going to tell you. I wanted you to have this big surprise. I didn't remember that this was the role that he played. I just knew that he was in it. I, like, vaguely knew he was coming up. But literally, first I see him, I'm like, I don't know who that is. And then he smiles, and I'm like, oh my god, that's him. It was literally like the same shot that was in The Man Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail. Up close, telephoto, smiling. And then they fight. I take them as generals that know each other by reputation and probably have shared the battlefield together. They have a lot of respect for each other, which I think is really cool. Rokuroda is shockingly calm under pressure and has no emotions, considering that these are the people that literally just executed his sister and have destroyed his entire clan. He definitely, like, hates the Yamada people in general, probably. But I feel like this guy, they're, like, both the two best generals of their respective clans. 
they have like i don't know some kind of shared understanding they have an awesome fight I love it for meta reasons. This is Akira Kurosawa's very first star facing off against the new hotness, his modern star. Yeah, yeah, the new hotness versus the, like, the OG. It was, uh, and it was wonderful. The fight is cool. It's very different than any other fight we've ever gotten. It's spear versus spear. Rokuroda takes a little while analyzing different soldier spears because they're all bad. And, like, he knew he was going to pick the third one. He does. But it's, like, funny. He, like, takes him, just throws him back, and everyone's terrified of him. Like the other Kurosawa movies, there's a lot of build-up to the fight. It reminded me a lot of when Susumu Fujita was standing off just sweating against Takashi Shimura, waiting for one of them to start the judo fight. Yeah. It goes on for a while, they're swinging all around, tearing through all the cloth in sight. <laughs> so I actually started laughing out loud, because I think they tear through the cloth a little bit too much to the point where it was more about tearing through the cloth than it was about fighting. Oh, yeah, they were definitely <laughs> aiming for the cloth and not for each other. They were just trying to destroy the camp. It was so, I like I was like actually like howling. <laughs> I was like, this is so funny. The first one, I was like, oh, it's really cool. And the second and third, I was like, oh, it's really cool. And then I was like, this is a little silly. Yeah, it was very Kurosawa in that we saw something cool and he did it a thousand times. <laughs> yeah, we just, we just like systematically go around and trap them up. <laughs> it's like, come on, <laughs> you don't you don't need to do this. It felt to me like in Throne of Blood where we had 12 different cuts of the guys lost in the fog. <laughs> yeah. There are definitely at least 12 different pieces of Yamana cloth torn to shreds by spears. It was almost like a joke by how much they kept moving from thing to thing until they got all of them. Like, they, they literally go piece by piece and cut them all. There was a rhythm to it. Yeah, it was it was cool. Though. And, like, the cuts, when they actually do the cutting, is, like, really cool with the spears. So it just, like, shreds through it, and it immediately parts and you can see it across. Rokuruda does best Tadakoro in combat, but he refuses to kill him, which is a crucial character moment there. Tadokaro doesn't say anything, he just gives this hand motion indicating that he should be beheaded. And then the Yamana just let him go. I think they're all just like, we can't handle this guy. Let him leave. He gives the spear back to that one Yamana soldier, he just tosses it out. <laughs> he uh, exchanges his sword for the first spear and then just never takes it back, which is kind of weird. Throughout this time, the gang with the cart has been moving around. They're like sitting in the rain and they're like, we don't know how to go forward, like we have no way to move. Rakuroda is like, oh, I'm going to go find a different way to transport the gold. I'm going to get, like, barrels to transport the gold. And that's when he runs off. There is the Yamana Fire Festival, which is starting, and so there's tons of people moving a bunch of wood, so they infiltrate that. Yeah, it's almost weird, because Rakuroda was going to have this plan, and then they subvert it by just joining the cart into the fire festival. How lucky for them to have a giant group of people moving all these sticks. Yeah, they even said, they're like, wow, how convenient. <laughs> thousands of people with sticks and the only thing the police know is they have to find people with sticks and you know what i respect they just bring this cart in and three people immediately divert course and go behind the cart and help them push it i'm like that is respect for your fellow man i dig these yamana they don't seem so bad yeah yeah they have a cool fire festival it looks fun it's literally the most fun princess yuki ever has as we learn <laughs> the police are there are they're like we don't know what to do everyone here has sticks let's just find anyone being suspicious I think it's implied that Rokuroda wants to leave, but then they can't because they know they're going to be found out. He is on his way. He suspects that they've gone this way. The fire festival is starting and some of the Yamana are trying to get them to put their cart into the fire. They're hesitant and then Rokuroda comes out of nowhere and is like, do what you're arousing suspicion. And so they just dump all of the wood full of gold into the fire and dance all night. Yeah, no, that's an awesome scene. Like, they're outside the thing, you're kind of watching it, and it's very cool. They look obviously suspicious as the princess and the two peasants just walk around, kind of aimlessly trying to, like, avoid the fire festival. And they look so scared while they're dancing because it's, like, mandatory fun. Oh, it's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> you have to dance so you don't look suspicious, and they're, like, crying. 
yeah the, the two peasants are like this is awful like what's going on and like the prince is having fun rokuroto's kind of like doing what he has to totally blank face <laughs> yeah just stone face just dancing <laughs> doing a much better job of dancing than the peasants are taking him back to his drunken angel days it's a very cool festival it reminded me actually of the festival in the idiot which is like one of the only cool interesting things about the idiot Mm, yeah, it is a lot like that. It's like this whole thing is like, I don't know why this is really happening. This is weird, but it's so cool. And it's just more production value. You know, it's just more stuff that's happening that doesn't feel like a whole lot of stuff we've gotten before. Yeah, plot wise, not super important, but like visually, just cinematically very cool. The plot isn't very intense. It's just meant to be a fun blockbuster. Yeah, the only plot device is that the gold is now flat because I guess it melted and um, not in sticks. The next day, they're digging up all of the gold. Now they have to put it in sacks, which jingle a bunch. And they're incredibly sus, walking around with all this. You start seeing, like, the Yamana guards coming around. It's not looking good, so they all, like, run away and leave. And the two dumbass peasants. <laughs> the peasants go back because they're too greedy to go get more. Guards find them, and then they chase them back to Rokuroda, who disarms them immediately, and then forces them to be the pack mules and carry the gold instead. I know, it's so good. It's so funny. They walk up, and you could like, tell they're, like, real, like, Simpsons cops when they walk <laughs> up to them. And they're like, oh, what are you two doing? And they're like, nothing. And then they walk away, and they, like, just kind of let him go. And they're, like, digging in the pit, too. And they chase them, and Rokuroda just kicks their ass. Disarms them so fast, has their spear on them, and then they get turned into part of the gang. And I was like, what? Are we going to, like, meet these characters? But we don't really. No, then they get shot by their own men and are dead, and that's it. After getting whipped by the peasants, which is really funny when the peasants pick up sticks and, like, attack them. They can't climb. They're just like the peasants. They're totally shit at climbing the rocks. Again, for, like, the eighth time. We never see Rakarota or anything fall, but they're just falling all over themselves. At this point, Yamana soldiers are really closing in on them. The peasants drop everything and manage to hide behind some foliage that they miraculously never get caught. But Rokuroda, Yuki, and she who will not be named by Kurosawa are captured by the Yamana and taken prisoner. The girl tries to sacrifice herself by running out, which originally was what Rokuroda's gonna do. She runs out first, and then she gets shot, and then he saves her. So like the whole plan gets like messed up. Yeah, he picks her up. That's the point where she says, leave me, and he doesn't. Yeah, leave me, I'm not worth it. He was originally going to sacrifice himself to save the peasants and the princess. And the peasants are like, oh, we'll just sell them out at the next gate. Yeah, these scumbags. That's the thing. Like, these guys aren't nice characters. They're bad people. <laughs> Maybe by circumstance, but yeah, they suck. And they try to sell them out, and the guards at the next gate just laugh in their face. They're like, we captured them, like, days ago. Idiots. Yeah, we, we already have the prisoners that you're reporting. Yeah, and they're gold. You're not getting shit. And they were like, now leave our kingdom. <laughs> like, they basically just got exiled for saying this. Yeah, for being stupid. <laughs> They're really just back where they started, just kind of wandering the countryside. The rest of the gang gets an unexpected visitor while they're awaiting execution. The most respected man in the Yamana army, apparently. General Hio Todokoro. Yeah, who starts out his conversation with them in shadow and eventually comes forth to reveal a giant facial scar. How could they do this to our boy? I know, our beautiful boy. That was because of his loss to Rokuroda. The Yamana lord himself did that to him. And now he's kind of rethinking all of his loyalties. He comes in there, he's scarred. But what he does is he like blames Rokuroda for not killing him. It's like, you betrayed me and now I'm living with this shame. This is like, isn't what I wanted. But then the prince is like, that's stupid. You should be grateful that you were like let to live. And you should be mad at the lord for attacking you. And he's kind of like, oh yeah. <laughs> Kurosawa was really calling the entire samurai mythos and notions of Bushido and loyalty and stuff into question. And then there's a weird scene where she just kind of sings at him for like two minutes. Yeah, real Ikaru scandal. It's got role. 
Very nice voice. I was surprised. I was like, why can all of his actors sing? It's so weird. The next day, they're being loaded onto the horses, and then all of a sudden, Tadakoro flips sides and helps free them. Yeah, he starts singing in like a little prophetic thing. In my opinion, it was like a little too close to when she was singing to the point where I was like, we've had no time to sit with that. Like, yeah, there wasn't enough time for it to be a callback because it literally just happened. Yeah, it like just happened. And just happened. It'd be like if in Ikaru, the scene where he's at the bar drunken singing happens right before the scene on like the swings. There wasn't enough time in there. But, you know, it's what happens and that's how you know it's going to be okay. On top of everything, Susumu Fujita can sing. Yeah. Oh. Is there anything this man can't do except lead a Kurosawa film anymore? He takes on this entire patrol of soldiers single-handedly because he's such a great fighter. All the horses have the Akazuki gold on them, so he sends them off, and they wind up going exactly to where the peasants are. They run off into the Hayakawa territory. The peasants are just, like, asleep, feeling like shit because they have nothing in there in a worse place than when they started. They're like, well, I guess we'll go home. And the horses full of gold, and they're like, oh my god. They freak out, and then all of a sudden, the Hayakawa men arrive, and they're just like, hey, what are you guys doing? Go to jail. They're like, are you part of the Akazuki? And they're like, no. They're like, oh, then you're thieves. We're arresting you. <laughs> like, shit. Yeah, they get wrecked. <laughs> Immediately. It's so funny. Rokuroda hops on a horse and just grabs the woman with one hand and throws her on the back and he escapes. And then Tadakoro escapes after that. There's these gunshots going off. None of them are landing. Yeah, right. The gunshots miss even though they're at point blank. <laughs> kind of like stormtroopers. <laughs> yeah. I presume there to be a big time jump. These guys just rotting in jail for a while. At least like a week. A little bit of time, at least. And then... They're brought to the Rashomon court. Yeah, they're literally brought to the set of Rashomon. <laughs> yeah. They apparently, like, somehow enter with their heads down, never put their heads up, which, like, you know, out of respect. But it's like a joke, and they're like, hey, look up. And they're like, what? Tadakoro, Rokuroda, and Yuki are all in, you know, armor or in proper garb. Don't you recognize me, uh, Toshiro Mufune in Throne of Blood? They don't even recognize her. They've never seen her like this. They never realized who she was. And now she's dressed up like a, a proper princess. Their minds are blown. And they're like, thank you so much for all that you did. Even though, truthfully, they don't really owe them anything because they tried to sell them out like four times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they didn't know most of that. They're like, we do need that gold, though. You were never going to have it. Here's one piece of gold to split between the two of you. <laughs> Yo, why can they split it up for them? It's like that flat, melted gold. And... Earlier, when they found the first two pieces, they were arguing about how it should be split. Didn't want to split it 50-50. Now they have one single piece to split between the two of them. Well, every time, it would always end up like one person with a little bit more, one person with less. And they'd be like, I'm keeping it. And he's like, no, 50-50. It was a little argument. But nope, now they have one. And ends in the very sweet note of, you know what? You should have it. No, you can have it. And that's how you know they're done being greedy for at least the next five minutes. The movie ends much as it began. Another Kurosawa full circle moment. It started with these guys walking away from the camera, and now it ends with them walking toward it. We get to see the Hayakawa Castle, and the end. Yeah, a wonderful film. One with some really great shots in it. I really loved the shot of the slave revolt when all the slaves were coming down the staircase towards the Yamana soldiers, because again, the scale of it, like nothing we'd ever seen before, and I really liked the soldiers in the bottom corner. They had a realistic army formation of frontline shoots, and then they split off and go to the back of the line to reload, and then the next line shoots, and it keeps moving in. They have their own cascading movement, and then so do the prisoners as they're coming down the stairs, and 
it just is beautiful. I literally will never forget it. It is such a cool detail. And now, rather than using weather, he's literally using just the mass of human bodies like water coming down. Thor epic gets thrown around a lot these days, but it's, a, it's an epic scene. Mine is the very first shot of the film, which, for whatever reason, I just found gripping. You have the credits third in blackness, which is pretty normal at this point. And it just immediately, the camera is following, like, almost like hand camera work behind these two guys as they walk. And it's just super crisp. It's, like, really exciting because the camera's following them, like, at eye level, like, walking along with them. The camera, like, is shaking around as it follows them. And I was, immediately, it just set it up as, like, this is going to be different. It's going to be really good. It's going to be really exciting. It's going to be, like, new. And it was for, like, the rest of the movie. And I immediately from the first shot, I was like, ooh, I'm really looking forward to this. It's a fantastic opener. The opener is always such an important aspect of every film. And this is one of the strongest that Kurosawa's had, I think. Even though it's just the two peasants arguing, I was like, we're in for something good. And we are. Yeah, it really feels like we're just being propelled into the narrative. Speaking of some of the best things that Kurosawa's ever done, some of the best that Toshiro Mifune has ever looked. Folks, we're doing the Toshiro Mifune hotness scale, and folks... And he's a 10, baby! Is t- 10. I absolutely agreed, 10. I was thinking 10 the whole time. <laughs> Finally. He is at his best. He never looks better than he does in this movie. I, I, I was like, I'm trying to find any flaw. I can't. He's got a nope. good beard. He's in, he's in the armor sometimes. He's got the short shorts. In booty shorts the other time. Yeah, in most of the movie. Yeah, he looks awesome. <laughs> looks so good. No flaws. Fantastic. 10. Perfect. Yeah. It, not, nothing, so nothing to comment on. It's just a 10. Yeah, 10. I agree. And I'm glad, I'm glad that we're on the same page because absolutely. Simply a 10. As for the movie, simply a nine for me. Yes, I agree. I do think that there are some flaws. There's some plot holes, plot conveniences, blah, blah, blah. The film as a whole, you know, it's not the most in-depth story. So sometimes it feels a little drawn out. But you know what I love is that when these movies are just so good like this one is and like a few of the other ones are, my criticisms become so much more specific. Because I can point out the very few little details that aren't working, whereas other movies, I'm like, this whole thing isn't working, and that's like 30 minutes of the movie. (laughs) It's not like The Idiot, where the whole thing is like, uh, I don't know. This film is so fun, so big, so much new stuff. I watched this with my dad and my uncle, who had never seen it, and they both loved it. My uncle's never seen like any movies like this. He really wanted to go to bed, because it was late. And he literally couldn't, because he was so enraptured with this film. He stayed up way past his bedtime, so shout out to Uncle Robbie for that. Nice. 9 out of 10. Yeah, I'm on the same page. It's a 9. I agree. I am very excited to return next week with The Bad Sleep Well, which is a loose adaptation of Hamlet. Oh. Which I never knew when I watched it years and years ago. It's been a long time. I don't remember anything that happens in it, really. We're going back to contemporary times. It's a long one. It's like two and a half hours in depth, you know, I think kind of like conspiracy-ish. I'm interested. It seems a little bit different for Kurosawa. And again, I just really don't remember it. So I've been looking forward to getting to this one in particular. So we'll see you then. See you next time.